0: Gangary the podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com.
1: Welcome to Gangway the Podcast, I'm Matt Tullis. Before we get started, we wanted to let you know that we're in the process of moving the podcast to a different web host. We're moving away from Podomatic and to SoundCloud. What that means is that if you follow the podcast using an RSS feed, you'll need to change it. We're also working on getting the new feeds to iTunes and Stitcher Radio. In the meantime, you may not be finding us in those places if you are used to looking there. Until then, we've posted the new RSS feed on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Now for this week's show. We've got a special show for you this week. This episode of Gangry the Podcast is focused solely on the best American sports writing 2015, which, by the time you're hearing this, is on sale in bookstores across the country. This year marks the 25th edition of the book, and it was guest edited by Wright Thompson. We're going to open with a conversation with Glenn Stout, the series editor. Stout also serves as a long-form editor at SB Nation, and, full disclosure here, Glenn has been my editor on all four pieces I have written for SB Nation. That includes The Ghosts I Run With, which you can listen to in episode 37. In our second segment, I'll talk with Jeremy Collins, whose story, 13 Ways of Looking at Greg Maddox, is included in this year's Best American Sports Writing. Finally, in our Required Reading segment, I'm going to break down this year's Best American Sports Writing and tell you why you should absolutely read this book. Now on with the show. Glenn Stout opens up the 25th Best American Sports Writing with a foreword that is very different than any he's ever written. He writes quite personally about how he became an avid reader and writer and what words have long meant to him. He also discusses how the series came about. Stout's not just an editor though. He has been a full-time author since 1993 and has been freelancing since 1986. Stout has written, ghost-written, or edited more than 80 books, representing sales of nearly 3 million copies. He is the author of the Boston Globe bestseller, Fenway 1912, which also won the 2012 Seymour Award and the Ritter Award by the Society for American Baseball Research. By the time you listen to this podcast, A version of Glenn's forward to Best American Sports Writing 2015 will have also appeared on SB Nation Longform, Glenn's first piece on that site after four years of editing stories, including my own. Also, by the time you are listening, Best American Sports Writing will be on sale across the country. As usual, we've linked to just about everything we talk about at our website. You can find us at GangryThePodcast.com. Glenn, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks very much, Matt. I'm so happy to to finally have you on the show.
2: Hey, I'm uh, real happy to do it. Thanks so much.
1: Uh, I I, want to have you on the show because, uh, in many ways, this is kind of a special dedicated to the Best American Sports Writing 2015, uh, which, by the time people are listening to this podcast, should be in bookstores everywhere. Um, uh, Let's start by talking, though, uh, about um, your introduction. Uh, As a series editor, you write one every year. Uh, this year, you wrote one that was, was very personal in many ways, uh, maybe more so than previous years. Uh, and, I, and I understand that a, 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 ver- uh, a modified version of that will be running on SB Nation long form uh, soon or if already. Uh, can, can you talk about that piece and, and sure. what you were hoping um, to do with it? You know,
2: you have to. One of the challenges of doing this book is that you have to write a forward to it every year. And uh, that's fun the first few years. And then after you do it for 10 years and 15 years and 20 years, uh, it gets to be a bit of a challenge to write the foreword to essentially the same book every year. But I took the opportunity this year, since it was the 25th year, uh, to maybe be a little more expansive. I wanted to recognize, uh, I think it's significant that the book has been around for 25 years. I wanted to kind of explain more about how I relate to it, and how i ended up doing this and then there were a few things i wanted to say about you know what i've learned about writing uh... over these twenty five years because doing a book like this you know you do start thinking about why stories work Mm -hmm. and uh... how to do them uh... and i really hadn't addressed those things before and quite frankly uh... your earlier story the ghosts i run with where you talked about uh... you know being ill when you were a child, uh, that was sort of my experience, too. I was really sick when I was a kid, and that kind of started that whole journey towards reading for me was, uh, you know, all those uh, days and weeks sometimes, you know, spent in bed, uh, trying to pass the time some way, trying to escape from, you know, the situation of <laughs> of being 10 years old and sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really the genesis of uh, of everything that's brought me to this point in my career, and certainly the sports writing book is a central part of that.
1: So this is the twenty fifth the twenty fifth year for the book. Uh, when you when you started, did you have? And you may have mentioned this in the, in that forward. Did you have any any illusions that w- it would last this long?
2: You know, I really did. I thought uh, this was a great opportunity, and I figured uh, unless I screwed it up that I would do this the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, so maybe that was arrogant, maybe that was arrogance, or maybe that was naivete on my part. But, yeah, I thought it was a great idea, and uh, I thought I could do it. And I wanted to get to the point where, you know, at some point there was that whole shelf full of of best Americans staring back at me.
1: If you look back to that first year and then to this year, uh, to 2015, um What's been the biggest change in in sports writing uh, in this country, in the United States?
2: Well, I mean, the biggest change really is where things are coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go back to that first edition, um, fully half the stories were from either newspapers and newspaper magazines, the Sunday supplements that almost every big uh, Sunday daily newspaper used to have, and hardly any do anymore— uh, there's the Globe, there's the, the uh, New York Times, and just a handful of others. But half the stories were from those sources. And the other half, of course, were all from magazines. Now, of course, there's digital media and the online world, and so much material just appears online. Um, that's certainly a change. It has made something of a material difference in the work itself because, let's face it, online you're not as confined as you were or are in print by space considerations, by, you know, plugging things into a designated hole. So the nature has changed a little bit because of that, but not dramatically. I mean, let's face it, it, a story that worked in 1991 that was good is still going to work and be good today uh, if you were doing your job in the first place. Mm uh... quality really shouldn't date you know you can go back and read ring lardner from nineteen twenty and some of that stuff you know doubles me over with laughter even today you know quality lasts uh... no matter what format it's in no matter what medium it comes from
1: the uh... the uh... this this book uh... like you said has a lot of stuff from online um sources uh, has it made it harder or easier to f- there's millions of places where stuff can appear now? Uh, yeah, whereas well, it's maybe twenty 20-
2: different. I mean, you know, it used to be I would just you know send off um, letters requesting submissions to you know several hundred newspapers and several hundred magazines and then do a lot of reading in magazines over the course of uh, of the year that I would get by subscription. And that pretty much covered it. But but even then, I mean, you know, the proliferation of newspapers and, and, and other publications meant you couldn't get to everything then either. You were really depending uh, to some degree on the writers or the publications themselves or even readers on sending you material. It's not that much different today with uh, digital media. Uh, yes, there's a lot out there. Uh, yes, it's impossible to get to it all yourself. However... You know, there are those aggregators out there that are always putting good stories forward. There are people chattering about it on Twitter. There are the people that I'm connected with as a writer talking about stories. So I think I still have a pretty good radar in regard to uh, finding stories. Uh, I mean, that's my big fear, is it's something really, really good won't come across my eyes, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's been an issue since the very beginning. And All you can do is kind of do the best you can, cast a really wide net, let everyone know you want to see work, and it's okay to send your own work. It always has been. We really like that, actually. (laughs) Um, And then just, you know, you hope for the best with it, really. Um, And the best stuff, you know, generally gets talked about and uh, is made visible by other people. Um even before I come across it on my own.
1: Mm-hmm. You you mentioned, uh, you know, asking reporters to send their own work in, and And in many ways, I, I'm thinking of my very first real experience with best American sports writing. Uh, and it was about a story I wrote about a horseshoe pitcher when I was at the Columbus Dispatch. His name was Alan Francis. He's the greatest horseshoe pitcher in the world, uh, bar none. And I sent that story to you, but the reason I sent it to you was because of the forward you wrote in that, that year's issue, which I think was maybe 2007, um, which talked about how computers have fundamentally changed um, the way stories are edited, mm-hmm. especially in newspapers, and, and it hasn't been a good change. Um, do, do you still feel that way?
2: Yeah, to some degree I do. I mean, let's face it, when, um, uh, when everything became electronic, machine-readable, fungible you could move everything around you could change everything uh... it changed the nature of this kind of work dramatically but nobody ever really talked about it much i mean i remember the first story that i did writing it out longhand five or six times then typing it then getting like one edit back and and that was it well now you know if you work on a story you're changing things all the time Mm -hmm. uh... and then when you turn it in editors can change things all the time And I think what I was kind of railing against then was that I was starting to see a real homogenization of, in the printed word, of stories that I kind of thought were over-edited, because now a lot of fingers could touch them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now every editor whose desk it came across could change things or ask for things to be changed. And to my mind, I was starting to see a lot of stories that were sort of leaving the same aftertaste. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 they were kind of being ground into paste. And I think that the editorial machine can do that. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do that, but it can. You know, if, uh, if you're in a position to edit a story, you're going to edit that story because that's your job. Whether or not that story really needs much work or not,
3: mm-hmm. you're
2: going to do it, and that's the tendency that I think the editorial process sometimes encourages, even though it doesn't mean to. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I was talking about there, is this kind of tendency to, to, to over-edit. And let's face it, as writers, too, because we can change everything, um, we can overwrite, too. Mm-hmm. And you're never satisfied with something. You're always tinkering with it. You're always tinkering with it. And you can over-tinker and take the life out of a piece. Um, you know, I try to be sensitive to that when I'm working with writers now as I I kind of know when I'm when we're going too far when I'm I'm when I'm I'm changing a word and then I'm changing it back and then I'm changing it again. I'm like, "Okay, that's enough." <laughs> uh, we're at the point now where where I'm just I can't even decide which is better. So, that's when we stop.
1: Right. Has, has your um editing style changed at all uh since you started working um with SB Nation?
2: Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think I had an editing style before I started doing this. Any editing I'd done had been of my own work, primarily. Uh, For other people, it had been on kind of an ad hoc basis, or editing a book manuscript that I was doing with somebody else, which is an entirely different process. When I started um, doing long form at SB Nation, which is just over three years ago, Um, you know, I sort of had to make it up as I went along. Um, And my basis for the way I approached work was pretty simple, and that was I tried to treat writers and work with their work the way I hope someone would work with me or would work with my work. Um, because I don't think I've had dramatically terrific editorial experiences for much of the time that I've been writing. Uh, very few editorial experiences, really. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to look at it the way a writer looks at it and try to be responsive um, to what the writer needs rather than what I need. Um, It doesn't matter at the end of the day uh, what I need. It's what the story needs, what the reader needs out of the story. And and let's just get there and forget about uh, I don't want to be a dictator. Um, I don't want to, you know... Grab the steering wheel. I still want it to be your story, and at the end of the end of the day, I want this to be a positive experience for the writer, mm-hmm. so they want to do it again.
1: Right. Um, the uh, when I when I teach editing um, to my, uh, I have my advanced reporting and editing class. We teach reporting. They write stories. They edit stories. Uh, when I when I teach them how to edit, I actually use um, all of our my your your comments to me as a, as a reporter mm-hmm. from the Stella Walsh story. Um, which the first draft that I turned in was not great. <laughs> it was fi- 5,500 words of not greatness. Uh, and yet as an editor, you were able to, but, you know, but when you're a reporter, you, whatever you turn in, you're convinced is the greatest thing that's ever been written in sure. the history of the world. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and I use the exchanges, the email exchange, like, like 40 or 50 emails, um, which I've saved uh, and, you know, and, and just show, showing them the back and forth as well as all the track changes in the comments in the Word document itself. Um, and I think it's, it, 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 you know, in terms of like that edit was like a time for me as a reporter when I realized, oh my gosh, I've got an editor who cares more about the story than making it sound like they wrote it. Yeah,
2: that's really nice to hear. I mean, because that's, um, you know, th- if it wasn't like that, uh, I wouldn't keep doing this. It wouldn't be worth it to me. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, when I started doing this, I was like, essentially, I just want it to be me. I don't want to work with a team of editors. I don't want to do group edits. I think those are kind of inherently bad for the work because they grind it down. And I hear from people at different outlets who might turn in a story and then get notes back from four or five people. Well, if you get notes back for four or five people, you're going to end up with a story, but I don't know whose story it's going to be. You know, it's not going to be yours. I I look at it as, at its best, when I'm working with a writer, it's a collaboration. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the collaboration is done with the reader in mind. And the collaboration is done with, I want you to be able to stand behind your story at the end of the day and have it be your story. Um, I don't want every story to sound the same. Uh, When I put this book together every year, the last thing I want is every story to sound the same i mean there are stories in the sports writing book every year that i love there are also stories in the sports writing book every year that i really don't particularly care for myself however i recognize that somebody else might Mm -hmm. that this difference in voice uh... that i don't particularly respond to that someone else might respond to it Mm uh... and that's why i think you know a book like this can last for twenty five years is because it's not safe and it's not predictable and I think that's why, you know, what we're doing at SB Nation Longform and what a lot of other uh, publishers, whether it's in print or in digital media, are doing is, you know, you're trying to do things so it's not predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the worst thing you can say about a story is you can read it and say, oh, yeah, that sounds like a story from X. Um, you know, if, if you're doing that, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah.
1: So let's let's talk about this year's issue, A Best of... Best American Sports Writing, which again should be on sale uh, anywhere you buy books right now.
2: That's right. Anywhere, uh, any bookstore can order it uh, for you. Uh, you can order it from anywhere online. You know, don't forget your independent booksellers. They're like really important to this business.
1: So, I I, and I think I told you this before we actually started recording. Um, I, you know, I, I really I don't I this this edition I think is is I think one of the best ones that I've ever read. Um, I've rarely felt where I feel the, uh, compelled to read every single story all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end. Um, and every single one in some way, shape or form sticks with you. Um, there, there's also this, this kind of, this edition where I, you know, the games are so secondary to the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking like Katie Baker's piece on Kansas city. Right. Um, or Jeremy Collins's piece, uh, thirteen ways of looking at Greg Maddox. Um can you can you talk about maybe how that came about? Is that something that is solely the, the domain of the the guest editor or is that what we're seeing more being
0: published?
2: Well I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, the guest editor this year <clears throat> excuse me. The guest editor this year is Wright Thompson of ESPN and you know, Wright is really into storytelling. Uh, and he was kind of overtly eager to include stories. He really didn't care to include, like, an uh, 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 investigative piece or anything like that. He wanted stories. So that's more of what he focused on. Um, and, you know, I try to keep it, again, as simple as I can. I just try to pick things that, I w- after I read them once, I want to read again. Uh, that's as as complicated as I can make it, and as simple as I can make it. And it's really the only criteria I use. I try to think about it as a reader. And in this year's edition, you know, with the focus on more stories, so there's not, uh, you know, so much an investigative story or something like that. It's just stories after stories after stories. And, you know, stories are about people, and people are compelling. And uh, and I always think back to a conversation I had with Rick Callender about three or four years ago, uh and I'd never met Rick before and we, we met at a bar in Burlington on Saint Patrick's Day after my band got done playing and we were talking about this and he said to me at one point, he says, Let's face it, Glenn, he says, We don't really care about sports. He says, It's just an excuse for us to write about the things we really care about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the truest statements about sports writing ever. Yes, we like sports. Yes we do kind of care about sports. But when you write about it, you're not writing just about sports. You're writing about those other issues. You're writing about race and class and life and death and love and loneliness and all those human issues that affect us all. Sports is your way into it. Characters are your way into it. Uh, Every story in the book, ideally, should work for someone who knows nothing about sports. Mm Every story that we do uh, for SB Nation Longform should, should work for someone who cares nothing about sports. However, they do care about those other issues. They do care about storytelling. And if we do our jobs right and present those stories in such a way, the genre that they come from really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They're larger. They're more universal. Uh, they speak to everyone. Not just to a specific niche audience.
1: All right. You know, after this, uh, this segment with you, I'll be talking with Jeremy Collins, and, and we mentioned his 13 ways of looking at Greg Maddox. And that strikes me as w- really one of those stories that, uh, in many ways, is not about sports at all, um, and yet is framed around Greg Maddox uh, from his days with the Atlanta Braves. Um, I'm making the assumption here because it ran on SB Nation long form that, y- that you edited that piece.
2: Uh, yes, but, uh, and, and here's the but, uh, that was a piece that really didn't need much editing. Uh, I think Jeremy's extremely talented as a writer, mm-hmm. and that story came to me, that was actually done on spec, mm-hmm. uh, because he pitched me the idea of this story, and it's so hard um, to go out on a contract on a memoir mm-hmm. because you really don't know what you're going to get. Right. And uh, I'd looked at some of his earlier work and it was really interesting. And I was like, "Well, go ahead and do it, and we'll see." And then he turns in this piece that is virtually finished. Uh, and all I tried to do in the editing was to make sure it all worked, mm-hmm. uh, to not mess it up first by getting overly involved but uh to make sure it all worked, to make sure all the language fit, that there weren't any loose ends, that there weren't any rough spots that would stick out, um because the whole idea is to get you into a story and have the rest of the world disappear mm-hmm. and you know that's something I talk about you know in the forward to the to the sports writing book is you know being that sick kid in bed, books were the way for everything else to disappear. Mm-hmm. And that's the experience I think readers want um, in any story, uh, in any book. You want the rest of the world to disappear, and when you come out of that story or when you come out of that book, you should come out changed. Might, maybe not in a dramatic way, but you should be a different person. And I think what Jeremy does in that story is just extraordinary. Um, rarely has a story that I've read. Uh, by anyone, um, just been so emotionally engaging um, because it's it's a memoir about a friend of his who passed away, mm-hmm. yet it's done in a way that's never cloying, that's never sentimental. Um, it's just an extraordinary experience, and when you come out of it, you realize you've been taken on a trip, right? Uh, and you've been to some places that are some t- in some cases not very comfortable either, um, but that. You know, you've experienced something that you hadn't experienced before,
1: and he's got uh, two other pieces on SB Nation long form right now, including one that just ran recently, um, "The Reckoning." He he has a, a really distinct voice, and and I think that's something that maybe you, as an editor, want to um, save. That oh yeah, sometimes absolutely. gets I lost. Mean, he in, has in,
2: a, he has his own sound, and mm-hmm. I mean that uh, um, specifically. He has a sound. Uh, he's very. Sensitive to the way words sound and to the rhythms of language, and you want to preserve that. Um, That's a rare gift to be able to do that. You know, my background as a writer comes from poetry, far more than it does from prose. So I'm kind of tuned to that, and when I see that in someone, um, uh, I really respond to it because I'll understand why they're. I I think I understand why they're doing some things. Mm And, you know, sometimes you're doing things just for sound because it feels right, Right. (laughs) you know. And and maybe, um, you know, someone else, another editor with different experiences, is looking more for things to make sense. Well, there's nothing wrong with things making sense, but there are different ways to deliver an experience, Uh, and some of it is just purely sensory. And the sound and the rhythm of the words embedding themselves in your ear um, taking you out of the real world and into this interior world where only the story exists. Uh, that's, a, that's a real difficult thing to do, but it's a real gift because that takes you so much farther in uh, uh, immediately if the sound is right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world you know, fades away a lot faster. And Jeremy is extraordinarily adept at that. His last story, which ran a couple weeks ago, called The Reckoning about Paul Oliver, The the University of Georgia um, defensive back and NFL player who killed himself because of CTE. Mm -hmm. Um, What was interesting to me about that story is that's really Jeremy's first reported story. Everything else he's done has been memoir. And in his first reported story, he was able to bring that same sound and get to that same uh, intimate place where the rest of the world falls away. Uh, and it was just really a uh, kind of extraordinary to see, because mm-hmm. um, I didn't know. You know, I was curious. Can he do this? And I think the answer is he can. Right.
1: The uh, do Do you have a favorite piece in this year's book? A favorite piece
2: in this year's book. Well, without citing Jeremy's, <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, which which is kind of a favorite piece. Right. But but let me back out and tell everybody and say to everyone that uh, you know all the stories. Um, are given to the guest editor, absolutely blind, mm-hmm. so that they don't, um, uh, you know. So we, we try not to have any favoritism. Of course, we all know everybody, right, uh, or somebody. So no one is is absolutely pure here. You know, it's hard to pick a favorite one. I think the one of the ones that I found like really surprising um, was the, the Katie Baker, and this is Katie Baker of the Daily Beast, not Katie Baker of Grantland. Um, those Kansas City Blues, a family history where she used the occasion of, you know, Kansas City making the playoffs last year to take a deep dive into her own family. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of those stories that, you know, Hey, we're not part of her family. But the things she writes about her family and their relationship to this city and to this game um, find those moments of resonance that many of us have with our own families, with our own places we're from, with the way we connect to our families through other other things, whether it's sports or music or things like that. And that's what I think, that's how those stories work, is Mm -hmm. they... Find those moments of recognition where you see in their experience, you see your own experience. And and I think that's a real sleeper of a story in this book.
1: Yeah, I was not, you know, when I first started reading it, I was like, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I'm going to want to finish this piece. And then, like, in about three seconds, I was, like, sucked in.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I, and I really have to, I have to thank Alex Belf for tipping me off to mm-hmm. that story. Because uh, uh, Alex is a friend, and he sent me an email one day, and he's like, you want to read this?
1: Right. The uh, the the one that I was surprised by, and and I don't know why, because I love his writing, is Brian Phillips' uh, piece uh, on sumo wrestling in Japan, mm-hmm. um, which I thought I was going to have a really hard time getting into, but then once you get into it, oh my gosh, it's so um, so deep and so um, really really well done.
2: Well, he's a you know he, he's kind of a guide for you in that story, right? I mean, you're going into a, a culture and a place that. Uh, you're not very, that generally the reader is not going to be very familiar with. And when you do that, uh, without being overt about it as a writer, you have to, you have to teach. Mm-hmm. And you have to you know, bring the reader with you and let them see what you see and let them know how you come to your conclusions and your responses to a place. And that's the challenge of when you're doing anything that's uh, in any kind of exotic locale or has any travel aspect to it, is you have to do that without making it seem like, uh, you know, you're a museum docent stopping in front of exhibits.
1: Right. And I also have to say, I like seeing Seth Wickersham's Awakening awakening the Giant, and they're considering I talked with him on a podcast about that story last year, so... Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah,
2: I mean, that was, you know, he he takes off from that kind of iconic photograph of Tittle Mm -hmm. that many of us remember. You know, I certainly remember seeing it when I was a kid. In fact, you know, I think Wyatt Tittle was still playing when I was a kid, um, which isn't the case for many other people. (laughs) But, um, and and in fact, you know, that's one of those great stories because it's like, not only is he forgotten by, you know, a younger fan who probably may not have ever heard of him, may just know of him. As a, as a name in a book or a name on a website of statistics, but it reintroduced him uh, to people who may have just forgotten that he was even still around. Um, I mean, I remember related to that was when I did the book The Best American Sports Writing of the Century with David Halberstam, and we were making our selections, and, of course, we were mulling over multiple stories by W.C. Hines, mm-hmm. the great sports writer. And... Halberstam said to me, he says, is, is he still living? And I was like, you know, I don't know. And uh, we talked about that for a while, and Halberstam was like, he says, we've got to, we, you know, we have to find out. And he gets off the phone, and a few hours later, he calls me back up, and this is David Halberstam, you know. Right. right. And he sounds like he's about four years old. He says, I just got off the phone with Bill Hines. And he was so excited, and of course Bill Hines was still living, and uh, had wonderful things to say, and and that sort of sparked a little mini-revival of of Bill Hines' work, culminating in the recent collection that Bill Littlefield just put together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had the same kind of feeling, I think, with Seth's story when I first encountered it. It's like, oh, wow, why a tittle is, you know, there's still something to be said about him, and, and, um, uh, you know, he's still here with us, and, and there's still things to learn from his story. Right.
1: Uh, Can we talk real shortly about SB Nation? How's it going? And uh, it seems like things are going really well.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we just finished our third full year. um, And to date, we've done, I think, 186 stories by 92 different writers. um, And we're, you know, moving forward. We're doing one big story a week. And um, that is going to continue. Uh, I'm still enjoying what I'm doing. I'm getting people pitching me stories, you know all the time. I'm not uh, uh, you know I'm not getting tired of it, and even better, readers aren't getting tired of it. We're getting more readers all the time, and readers have I think come to expect that you know we're another we're another stop on the long form road mm-hmm. um, that seems to be weaving its way all through the internet now. Um, you know, you can kind of depend that we're doing some good storytelling. Um so you know I couldn't be really happier with the work that people like yourself and everybody else I've interacted with uh has done. I mean that's been the most gratifying thing about doing this is is we've been able to tell some stories that are, uh, really have some lasting value. Um and you know it's it's neat to be able to say hey if we weren't doing this these stories might not have been told at all. Right. Uh and, and that's what's the you know that's the magic of all this. Is that you create things that weren't there before, and you give people experiences that they didn't have before.
1: Right. Well, Glenn, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk talk hey, with well, me here you, on the Matt. podcast. I really, I
2: really enjoyed it, and thanks for you know all your hard work on the podcast and uh, and everything else.
1: Best American Sports Writing is on sale now, so go find it and read it, and you will not be disappointed. So, thanks a lot, Glenn. Thank you. We've been talking with Glenn Stout, series editor of Best American Sports Writing. The 2015 edition, the 25th in the series' history, is now on sale in bookstores across the country. We're going to take a short break right now. When we return, we'll talk with Jeremy Collins, author of 13 Ways of Looking at Greg Maddox. This is Gangry the Podcast.
0: Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, the Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu JDM.
1: Welcome back to Ganger the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Our next guest is Jeremy Collins, Collins is an essayist whose award-winning work includes a 2009 Pushcart Prize. His story, 13 Ways of Looking at Greg Maddox, was selected by Wright Thompson for the Best American Sports Writing 2015. That piece ran on SB Nation Longform. Recently, Collins published a new piece on SB Nation. The Reckoning takes a long look at the damaged football wrecks on its players and our nation's obsession with the sport, and how the two intermingle. Collins teaches English at the early college of Arvada, and lives with his wife and two daughters in Colorado. Jeremy, welcome to the Gangry the Podcast.
3: Hey Matt, thanks for having me on.
1: Hey, let's start off by talking about uh, 13 ways of looking at Greg Maddox, which uh, was included in the best american sports writing 2015 uh which you know by the time anybody's listening to this podcast is now on sale um can you can first of all can you talk about that piece a little bit it's a very very moving and very personal uh very very personal piece um can you talk about it
3: sure yeah the 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 piece on Maddox um for those who haven't read it or are looking to read it it's it's kind of merges a uh, personal essay and a profile essay. and Talking about uh, the death of my college roommate and childhood best friend, Jason Kinney, who was a high school star athlete, um, a really excellent athlete, who died in a drunk driving accident that I survived. And uh, we both grew up in Metro Atlanta and were huge Atlanta Braves fans growing up. But he had a particular sort of fascination with Maddox. And the essay looks at Maddox and his... Uh, capacity for control sort of juxtaposed to um, some adjacent struggles with addiction and, and um, with drinking and alcoholism. Um, so that that's kind of the basic setup of the essay. And in terms of writing it, it was born out of, um, well, out of a, a lot of frustration and failure for 20 years of, almost 20 years of trying to tell Jason's story. Um after so Jason passed away in, in March of 1996 and about a year after that, I, I sort of, I, I, we were we were freshmen in college. So my, my sophomore year at the end of that experience, I told Jason's father, I'd write a book about Jason. And so I got to work and tried to write a book about Jason and, and went through several different drafts through a, a long expanse of time. And, um, and, did not sell did not land and so um i think it was the summer of 2013 when or 2014 when maddox was elected in the hall of fame um instead of trying to write another draft of a book that probably wouldn't land i said you know i'm just gonna take everything i have and kind of put it into a standalone essay and, and see if that works
1: it's interesting that you talk about that time frame. Um, we were talking before we went on the air about, about my piece, the Ghosts I run with, which also ran on SB nation, um, long form. And in many ways it's, it was, it seems like it was the exact same setup. Um, you know, I've been talking about writing about that for probably 25 years, 20 years, maybe. Uh, and then it just all clicked in like March of the earlier this year. Um, is that is that what happened with this piece? Did it just kind of click? You finally saw the whole thing come into focus.
3: Yeah, there was, there was a little bit of urgency connected to it. I, you know, so, someone said, and I forget who, it was someone maybe a sports blogger that, you know, you're always grateful for guys like Tim Duncan who are still playing, who are, are older than you, because when you look at sports and you realize that you're older than everyone else, you realize something about mortality. But I, I Maddox had was going into the Hall of Fame, and I, there was something about that that kind of, I knew I wanted to talk about Maddox, and I knew I wanted to talk about Jason in relationship to Maddox, and instead of thinking of it as a book, I I kind of, I remembered something that I heard uh, Bruce Springsteen say before the 2009 Super Bowl, he was doing the Super Bowl show, and they had sort of given him the charge of saying, all right, well, you have nine minutes, you have nine minutes to kind of crystallize your you know, your your long career. And, and Springsteen said something to the effect that that kind of limitation in a way is a gift. And so I looked at it and I said, you know, I have, you know, 6,000, 7,000 words here. What, what would I say about Jason if I could just sort of think of it, not as a book, but as almost like a collection of like, um, fortune cookies. Like mm-hmm. if, if I could just sort of wrap, write little messages about who he was and, what his life and death meant in relationship to Maddox, in relationship to our friendship, or what I have to say. So that kind of urgency and that kind of limitation, uh, it helped. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you talk about the structure of the story? Uh, you broke it up into, obviously, 13, um, I don't well, maybe chapters. I guess they'd be shorter chapters than a book, but 13 sections. Um, wh- why, did you, why did you build the piece that way?
3: Yeah, that's a good question, and it's it, it's it's one that sometimes I ask myself consciously, and, and sometimes I try to resist because um, I it's it's been the the form and function of the way that that I'm comfortable writing in. Um, other essays that I've done tend to follow that pattern. Uh, I believe it was Philip Lopate who wrote an essay about um, interweaving essays and moving back and forth in t- in time and place. And I remember a couple of years ago, um, it's been a while now, but uh, Annie Dillard wrote a book for the time being that jumps in and out of space, time and place, and sort of juxt- juxtaposes things that you wouldn't necessarily think are related to each other. And I love that sort of tension that can exist in narrative art. And and so that, that kind of gave rise to talking about things that were personal on one hand, my relationship with Jason, and then things that, that people would automatically just... Kind of know about being avid sports fans in terms of Maddox's career and in the way that he was.
1: I I think in many ways that ultimately is what the kind of the narrative engine of the piece is, is because you've got the reader trying to um, figure out how this is connected and how it's all going to come together at the end.
3: Yeah, I hope so. I um, mean, that that was <laughs> that that was the intent, um, and you know to to not well i guess to give away the ending um you know, i had this sort of this chance encounter with maddox in um the summer of of 99 and you know i just kind of had that in my back pocket that i i knew that 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 it happened and that was real and that conversation um occurred at a at a at a bookstore um so i for, and in many ways and i i know this is not uncommon but that began the essay was that ending and and then i had to kind of like Think about well, what was essential about who Jason was and who who was Jason in relationship to Greg Maddox? So, so yeah, I want the reader asking that question of, of how, how does all this kind of come together?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about? I mean, you write you write essays. You, you've uh, you've won a Pushcart uh, Prize in two thousand nine. Um, when, when you're doing nonfiction, um, how much reporting do you do? There was obviously some reporting uh, in the Greg Maddox piece because you had to find out a little bit more of who Maddox was. Can you, can you talk about how you, how you go about that? And, and were you trained as a reporter or is it something you've kind of learned as you go along?
3: Yeah, there's, there's no real formal training. I mean, I have a, a MFA in creative writing from uh university of New Mexico and that was, it was a great program and it was, uh, and it was rigorous, but there were no, um, I did not take any sort of uh, traditional journalism classes, but I think being curious about the world and, um, uh, and asking questions and and being willing to put yourself kind of in vulnerable places. Um, and the Maddox piece, there, there really wasn't a lot of that. It was more just sort of sleuthing online about um, chasing down some facts and and reading some more about Maddox that had, had been written in some other places um, and trying to confirm certain details. And in other pieces I've written, there there've been some more um, what we could call traditional reporting. Um, I've done some work on uh, talking about working with veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan who were students in my class um, at the collegiate level. And so working with them, that, that, that sort of required a little bit more of um, traditional reporting and asking questions. But a lot of times, um, in, in a piece I, I just did called The Reckoning, which is about the life and death of uh, Paul Oliver, a former football player, for the university of Georgia and San Diego, uh, chargers that involved a lot more sort of traditional reporting of spending time with family and friends and asking questions and, and trying to, to get facts of just realizing who he was in the world. But with the Maddox piece in particular, that was memory imagination and, and Google, um, <laughs> uh, for, for lack of a better term.
1: The, uh, uh, it got a great great feedback uh once once it was published on sb nation long form um what were what were you was that the that was your first piece that you published on that site um what were what were your expectations going in
3: well, it was odd i i think um it was a little bit jarring i you know the the previous experience uh, of a lot of things that I've done have landed in some literary journals, where I think the the larger readership might be members of my family, um, mm-hmm. that uh, that exists. So it was it was really rewarding to to be read. I think that's what what any writer wants. Um, and and I had seen you know the the work that that Glenn had done on on SB Nation and a lot of the stories that were particularly resonant, and so this, that was motivating to see the large readership that occurred. Um, so that was rewarding. I mean, it was rewarding to have people t- to read the story and to know Jason's story because ultimately that's, that's what, that's, that's part of what, what any writer wants, especially uh, as you know, when writing about, um, people who are close to you, who, who have, who have died is that you want some part of them to somehow live in the world through words. And, um, so that so that was encouraging and, um, a little bit jarring, um, but, but, but jarring in the best sense.
1: Yeah, and then and then you found out that it was included in Best American Sports Writing.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was pretty great. I um, Wright Thompson actually gave me a call on my phone, and um and I re- and had been you know familiar with his work for a long time, and I, I resisted the urge to to spike the iPhone at the end of the conversation and a touchdown celebration because because uh, I was pretty stoked. In fact, I. I um you know his work, his piece that he had done on on Dan Gable in particular, it really mm-hmm. sort of always stayed with me. Um, so I was I was super
1: excited. Right. Um, let's talk. Let's talk briefly about uh, about the piece, the reckoning, uh, which is is just has gone live in the last couple of weeks on SB Nation long form. Um, it's it's a, it's a story that I, I unfortunately feel like we're seeing more and more often in terms of football players who are dealing with. Um, this traumatic brain injuries that they suffer while playing uh, I think one thing that, that you do that a lot haven't that, or maybe some have tried but maybe weren't as successful is is try to like juxtapose our national obsession with the sport and, and what what is the uh, the duty I don't know the duty of the fan or you know is it, is it a bargain in the end um, can, you, can you talk about that piece and, and why you wanted to do that
3: yeah, sure. I, th- I think it's a it's a bargain, like you said, that a lot of football fans. And when you say football fans, you're using a pretty ubiquitous term for mm-hmm. Americans. Um, it, it is our national civic religion, and it's um, it's everywhere. So, I for me, the piece was rooted, you know, in, in Paul's death in particular, because I had really distinct memories of watching him play, and um, I couldn't shake that, and I couldn't mm-hmm. shake kind of a general sense of, of guilt when I was watching the game and just trying to sort of, as you said, you, you see more and more stories that are related to CTE and depression and suicide and the lingering effects. And, and so I was curious and I approached Glenn uh, Stout at SB Nation about doing the piece and he was highly encouraging. And, um, and I wanted to, cause, cause right now there's, there's There's a veritable canon of pieces that have been done Mm -hmm. about, you know, football players who have suffered and um, their lives have been, you know, devastated. They're, they're no longer recognizable. They have these, these horrible demises. Um, And there's some, some beautiful, you know, disturbing pieces that have been done. And what I wanted to try to do was was do something a little bit different and maybe kind of talk about the, the the beauty of the game and, and maybe the horrible consequences of it too at the same time. And, and ask myself and ask uh, readers question of, um, you know, what is the value of this if, if this happens um, and when this happens, because we're in the early stages of something that's pretty unique and that's, that's coming into to more and more consciousness, of um, that, that football causes brain damage, and so what are, what is our responsibility as citizens and as fans going forward? I think that those are questions we're just starting to grapple with.
1: Was it hard? Uh to get the Paul family to work with you on this?
3: You know, Paul's family, they, um, it, it's something that, you know, Paul died two years ago. And as, as you know, I mean, grief works in different, um, a whole different clock than, than chronological time. And so it's still pretty raw for them. And um, Paul's death is, is still pretty raw. And, you know, he, Paul left behind a, a then a 2-year-old son and an 11-month-old son and um you know two loving brothers and a loving mother and a loving wife and he was really close with his family so there was they were uh, reticent at first as I would be um, as I would be too but um, you know they have a foundation set up by Chelsea his widow and Chris Burgett who is a teammate of of Paul's at the University of Georgia and so that's who I reached out to first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had a, a football camp this summer to raise awareness of CTE and to honor Paul. And I reached out and asked to be a part of that. And that's kind of where things started. And then from there, the the, the reporting aspect of it and the piece itself picked
1: up a lot of momentum. Yeah, there's a, a very poignant scene, maybe halfway, maybe a little more than halfway through the piece, where I think you are at that camp and you're interviewing paul's mother is that is that right correct yeah. and she and you ask her a question, and then she turns it on you and asks if you're a parent. Can you talk about that instance and, and what that was like for you as a, as a reporter
3: yeah it was it was an interesting moment because you know at at the camp, Janice Oliver was there, and uh, she was she was a part of you know this, this this was in the middle of July in the middle of Georgia uh, in the middle of the day. So it's, it's, it's hot and it's uncomfortable. And, um, and she was there in the stands throughout the day and and all three of her sons had had been star athletes at Harrison high school. And, and there was just sort of a break in the action and, and Janice had come down and and we just started talking. Uh, she's uh, in education policy and, and I'm a teacher so the the conversation mostly centered around that um but before long the conversation you know turned turned to paul and and when it went to paul we um I asked her in essence she expressed some obviously some regret and um and i I asked her you know what what could anyone have done and she asked me if I was a parent and um it just sort of brought a lot of things into focus. I think a lot of times as fans of the game, um, we forget that that's someone's son, someone's brother, someone's husband, and somebody, somebody's brain. And, um, you know, to risk an injury to that is to risk an uh, injury to the very identity of who that person Mm -hmm. is and who that person can be and who that person was. So that kind of crystallized a whole lot of, kind of the issues around CTE in the game was was that conversation with Janice Oliver.
1: Well, it's a fantastic story, and uh, and I would highly recommend that everybody buy a copy of Best American Sports Writing and read 13 Ways of Looking at Greg Maddox, and then, and then go online uh, to SB Nation Long Form and read The Reckoning. Um, Jeremy, congratulations on being in BASW, and thanks for coming on the podcast.
3: Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
1: We've been talking with Jeremy Collins, an essayist who lives in Colorado. His story, 13 Ways of Looking at Greg Maddox, was included in the Best American Sports Writing 2015, which is now on sale. As usual, we've linked to Jeremy's work on our website, which you can find at www.gangrythepodcast.com. And now for this week's required reading. I was at first hesitant to load up an entire episode focused on the best American sports writing, 2015. I mean, how much sports writing can our audience take before they plug their ears and run away screaming? But then I started reading the newest edition, guest edited by former podcast guest, Wright Thompson. I was just about through the entire book when I realized I was doing something I had never done before with this book and that's reading every word of every story in the order in which Thompson put them in. Starting with Glenn Stout's very personal forward about how he developed his love of words, to Thompson's own admission and his introduction that he one day dreamed of just having his work included in the book, forget about editing it, and then all the way through the amazing pieces chosen for inclusion. This edition is unlike any before it, In that there are no gamers or columns, there's no investigative pieces, the only thing in this book is stories, and they are amazing stories. From Jeremy Collins' piece 13 Ways of Looking at Greg Maddox, which remembers his friend Jason and Jason's mystical connection to Maddox, to Chris Ballard's hilarious Haverford Hoops story, from Tommy Tomlinson's remarkable piece Precious Memories, which looks at former North Carolina basketball coach Dean Smith as he lives with dementia, to Don Venata Jr.'s amazing profile, thanks to a crazy level of access on Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. This book is also exciting for me, because I see many former podcast guests included as well. Aside from Thompson, there is Chris Jones and Flinder Boyd. There's also Seth Wickersham and his story on YA Tittle which we talked about on this podcast. One story, for me though, stood out among all others, and that was Brian Phillips's The Sea of Crises. The piece was published by Grantland, and while I love Phillips' work in general, I didn't see any way I would be able to get through a long piece on sumu wrestling. By the end of the first section though, Phillips had grabbed me and I couldn't put the book down. It wasn't about sumu at all. Rather, it was about struggle and living and understanding, or trying to understand, this world that we live in. The piece turned remarkably personal in a way I never expected. It's this type of story, like so many in the anthology, that opens a window into someone else's life that lets you see the world in a slightly different way, if only for a brief moment. In short, the sea of crises makes you understand humanity just a little bit more. The fact that sports is the scaffolding upon which that tale is structured is secondary. And that is what makes this edition so good. Just about all of the stories are built like this. They are about more than sports. They are about life. The sports are just in the background. Well, that's it for this episode of Gangry the Podcast. Join us next time when we talk to Robert Sanchez, a senior staff writer for 5280 Magazine in Denver, and Bradford Pearson, an editor of Southwest, the magazine, and a freelance writer who just published a piece in which he tracked down the men who kidnapped and robbed him several years ago. If you would like to submit a required reading to the podcast, and we highly recommend that you do, please send your review of a piece you feel everyone should read to gangrythepodcast at gmail.com. We'll go through the submissions, pick the best, and then record them for a future segment. As usual, you can stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. You can find us at gangrypodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. We've also got a Facebook page, so check that out. You can find everything we've talked about today on our website, That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. This episode was produced in the studios of 88.9 WRDL at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for listening.